Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. Today we have a bunch of great topics that we're going to address. The first is we're going to talk about grieving the life that we thought we might have, right? We can have a lot of expectations and assumptions that we have about what our life should look like and what if it doesn't turn out that way. The next thing we're going to talk about is parentification, what that can mean to be a parentified child, a parentified, you know, uh, even though you're an adult, if you can be parentified to your parent who is older or spousification, we'll discuss that. Then we'll also talk about craving attention from people and kind of wanting them to know that we're doing poorly, but also not wanting them to know and why that can feel like this internal push-pull. Then we're going to get into healthcare workers and our own mental health and how I feel about some of us struggling with our mental health when we're also there to help others. Then we'll dig into not wanting to tell our parents anything and wanting more privacy from them and why that can happen. There are a lot of places that can come from. We'll really dig into that. And finally, we're going to talk about ways that we can be more excited or hopeful for our future. A lot of you are struggling to see any light at the end of the tunnel or feeling like things just are never going to get better. We'll talk about that and how we can kind of trick ourselves using some, you know, psychology techniques in order to be more helpful and hopeful for the future. Without further ado, let's jump into question number one. This question says, Katie, how do I grieve the life that I thought I would have, i.e. not having children, being 40 and single, never married, etc." Now, we had a ton of comments. I'm just going to read through them because they're all along this line. Somebody said, how do you grieve the life that you didn't have because you were always in fight or freeze or flight or freeze? Sorry, not fight. Someone else asked, how do you grieve a life you can never have? Like, I can't have children due to medication, and I live with my family due to a severe mental illness, and my father's passing away last uh, December, or December of last year, and I cannot have any relationship due to this. Another person said, to add this, grieving things that you didn't have as a child. For example, I didn't have a good relationship with your parents, with my parents. And a final add-on says, how can I grieve not having had the family that everyone else has due to emotional neglect? And can I change the toxic patterns? Okay, there's a lot to dig into here. And the first piece is that when it comes to grief, we we obviously are usually think of it when it comes to death and dying and losing someone, um, whether it's a person, a pet, or something like that. But grief is way more complex and more common than just that. And I'm not saying just to minimize the pain of loss. Trust me, I've lost a lot of family members in my life. And that pain is very heavy. And that grief is very complicated. However, we grieve a lot of things in our life. We can grieve the loss of a friendship. We can grieve if we made one decision, we can grieve that that other decision, right? Let's say, you know, to, to move somewhere, to take one job, but not another, to choose one school over another, to do a ton of different things, pick our work over, I don't know, a relationship. There's a lot of choices that we make day in and day out, and there can be a lot of grieving that comes along with that. And the person who has question, who asked this question is talking about all of the assumptions or expectations that they had for themselves. And the first thing that I always, when we talk about expectations, if you haven't watched, um, I have a video that I put out about this, where I felt like expectations and assumptions kind of ruined my year. And if you haven't watched that video, I encourage you to do so because there's a key piece of learning from my own experience that I share in there. And that is to take a moment to at least consider whether the expectations of what you thought, like the shoulding that you were doing, I should have had this, or I thought my life would look like this, are they your own? 
And I only bring that up first because sometimes we in society can feel like things have to go a certain way. Our life has to look a particular way, like being married, having kids by a certain age. And I'm here to tell you that it doesn't, but I know we have been like brainwashed our whole lives to feel that way. Trust me, I feel my own kinds of pressures in that way. Like I should be more financially stable. Um, You know, I'd been with Sean for five years before he proposed, we should probably get married. And then as soon as we got married, everybody was asking us when we're going to have kids. There's a lot of pressure for that. Or feeling like in order to be an adult, we have to own a home. We can have these very bizarre expectations that we place on ourselves. And a lot of them are not from our own internal voice. They're external. So just check in on that. It can be internal. I'm not saying it can't. I'm just saying at least do some recon on your own and be a detective about it. Not judgmental. Don't judge. We're just wanting to figure it out and see if it lines up with who you feel you truly are and what you really want. Okay? Keeping that all in mind, then we can move into what if that is something we really, really want? And it's we're very sad about the fact that that's not what's happened in our life thus far. It's okay to allow those feelings to come in. One of the best ways that, because I am just much as any of you out there, don't want to feel my feelings all the time. They're uncomfortable. They're overwhelming. Ugh, right? And who likes their feelings? And so in order to kind of force myself to sit with them, I journal. And I know a lot of you hate journaling, but but here are a couple of things that can make journaling more attainable. Number one, it doesn't have to make any sense. We're not going to read it back. Meaning, I don't care if things are spelled correctly. I don't care if you can even read it. If your penmanship is so terrible, it doesn't even matter. If you jump around in topics, I don't care. That's really important. That's really helpful. Number two, you don't have to write until completion. If you have like five minutes, jot down some thoughts or what's coming up for you or maybe an emotion that you're experiencing. I'm so frustrated. I don't even know why. Is it because of this? Boop. Be done. In and out. Five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever kind of time you have. We don't have to spend 30 minutes, an hour doing this. Okay. And three, and finally, is that this isn't something we're ever going to share. And I think sometimes that privacy or that feeling that like I could write it and I could rip it up and get rid of it. Because again, I'm not going to read it back. It doesn't make I don't care if it makes sense. That could all be really helpful. Yes, I know in the past I've said that it can be beneficial for us to look back like a year ago in our journaling to see how far we've come. That can be helpful, but we don't have to do that if that prevents us from journaling in the first place, right? Because then if we're not going to do it, what good is it? And so journaling can help us allow the feelings in, acknowledge them, and kind of talk about them with ourselves. And I know that can feel a little crazy to be like, but you're having a conversation with yourself. Yes, because we have all the information inside of us. We know why we feel some kind of way, why things are overwhelming, why we're, I don't know, feel like we're plateauing or we're stuck in a rut. We know why we're grieving or maybe where these expectations came from. We have all that inside of us. We often just are so disconnected because it feels icky that we forgot. It's almost like it's in this closet and we have to like go digging and figure out where it's at. And journaling can help us do that. And it can allow those feelings to come in. And so I would just encourage you to journal about this. Like I thought that my life would be this some this kind of way. I thought I'd be married. I thought I'd have children. I thought I'd live in this place or have a home or whatever. Why do I feel that way? What is it about this? Am I sad about it? Maybe pull out a feelings wheel. I did that in my last therapy session just to try to identify what I felt because Grief is there, but it's more than grief, right? Grief is, uh, could be resentment even, could be anger, could be sadness, uh, could be the loss of the joy 
or the happiness that once was. It could feel like love. There's a lot of things that could be tied up into grief. And so I encourage you to kind of journal about that because I truly believe that grief is a slow and complicated process. But the more we allow ourselves to tap into it, see what it tells us, the sooner we can move through it. And I know that's kind of like a shitty therapeutic answer, but it's the truth that we can't just say like, well, let yourself cry and grieve because this isn't like a funeral. We're not showing up to this life that you used to have. We could envision that if that's helpful to get you going, but that's just not what's, we don't have this like these set events that push us into grief. And people don't ask us how we're doing with something. No one's checking in to kind of prompt any kind of process. We have to prompt it ourselves. And that's where journaling can really come in and be a key factor in moving us forward. And that goes for all these add-ons as well. Like grieving life you cannot have. Like I can't have children. Okay, what comes up for you when you think about it? Are there other ways that we can incorporate children into our lives? Can we manage those expectations? Can we set new ones for ourselves? I want to be involved in my nieces and nephews' lives. I want to be involved in my friends' children's lives. I want to volunteer at a, a you know, I don't know, at one of the like foster care system has a lot of ways. Like uh, I had made bikes and also picked up backpacks and suitcases for our foster care system back in the day, there's ways you can get involved to help change a child's life. You could be part of the Big Brother, Big Sister Foundation. I'm not saying you want to fix, and I know that that I'm just offering it as a potential, but it's also okay to sit in it, to journal about it, and to feel what comes up. Even when people saying grieving things you didn't have as a child, let yourself think about it, talk about it. Watch a show that has a family that feels like what you'd wanted. What's that feel like? How's that experience for you? What's the story you're telling yourself? It's okay to pose questions and answer them within. And if you don't like to write things out, I really encourage you to try. But if you don't like to, just give yourself an opportunity to go there in your mind and think about it. Because the the thing that I want to end with is that grief is tricky. Whether it's because we lost a loved one or whether it's because we're, we've lost something or we never had something that we so desperately wish we did. We have to give ourselves an opportunity and time to feel all that comes up because grief is not the feeling. It's only part of it. It's usually covering up a ton of other stuff. Like I said, it could be love. It could be resentment. It could be anger. It could be sadness. It could be any number of things. And so let yourself wallow in it a little bit. And then my final little bit here. So we journal, we consider, we let ourselves feel, which I know is hard and uncomfortable. You can start off with just like a minute or two. And then we distract. We have to distract and pull ourselves out really quickly to something else that feels good and that is um, regulating to our system. Something my therapist has me do right now because we're doing parts work is she has me imagine a big, well, for me, it's a big, it doesn't have to be big. She has me imagine a container. Now mine's like this huge wooden, like locked trunk. It could be whatever. But you imagine this container and you put the experiences and the feelings that came up for you when you were doing this processing. Let's put them in there, shut it, lock it, cork it, whatever it is, and leave it there as you return back. And then she has me like, go to my happy place. You could go to distraction, do something, pet your dog, go for a walk, talk to somebody loving, something like that. So we can leave it. Um, Because 
doing this work isn't easy. Tapping into our grief and our upset feels uncomfortable. That's why it's still hanging around. That's why this got so many thumbs ups and so many likes about and comments is because we're all experiencing this. There's all these things that we wish we could have had or expectations that weren't met or assumptions we had about what life would look like. And that all involves grief. And in order to move through it, we have to acknowledge it. We have to feel it. We can't just say, oh, I'm just so bummed about this and then distract with something else. We have to say, you know, I wish this is what my life looked like. I thought it would be like this. And then we have to let ourselves go there for a minute and say, how does it feel? We ask ourselves, how does it feel to consider that life and then look at the one we have? Is our life now not fulfilling? Is it bad? Is there something we want to change to make it better? How does that feel to not have that? Do we feel angry? Do we feel sad? All of that's just part of it. Because I'd love to tell you like, oh, talk with your therapist about grief, go to a grief group and presto fix so you feel better. No, our feelings are complicated. And grief is one of those that's like, it pops up when you least expect it. You can go somewhere and someone asks you a random question like, oh, is your husband coming? You're like, oh, I don't have one. Or is your wife here? I don't have one. Or oh, you having kids, right? People can ask things without even the consideration of how charged that can be. And I want you to feel like when that happens, you're not overrun with emotion and feel like you spiral out. I want you to feel like you can calmly and collectively answer their questions, say something and move on. And so we'll get you there little by little. Okay. Let's move on to question number two. This question says, Dear Katie, could you please talk a bit about parentification? We will. I believe that it can be the root of many problems and I can't find that much about it. I have an old video about it, by the way, but I'll do a new one. I believe I uh, feel like I was, or sorry, I feel like I was raised as my mother's therapist and I have a lot of problems now. I'm still living with her and have been completely burned out and depressed for the last year. I also struggle with thoughts of suicide and eating disorder behaviors. I feel like I lost my younger self. You probably, she never got to exist, right? I am way too grown up since I had to listen to my mother's problems way too early on. She even ignored my boundaries and my boundaries about not wanting to know specifics about her childhood trauma. I can't get these things, um, I can't get therapy myself and I don't know what to do. Can someone telling me too much do these things to you? Yes, it can. Is it bad that I feel responsible for her in my teens or is it just normal care for your loved ones? Thank you so much for all that you do. Now I have a couple of add-ons, quite a few add-ons to these. So let's jump into it. Now parentification for those of you who don't know is when we didn't get to be a child and it's because instead of being a child, we had to act in a parental role. This could be for many reasons. A lot of us are parentified because we become responsible for our siblings. This could be because our parents were absent, neglectful, abusive, addicts, any of these things. They weren't around in a way that was consistent or that we needed. And we stepped up as the quote unquote adult, adult child and acted in a parental role. This could mean that we made sure we woke up our siblings in time for school. We made their lunches. We checked in on homework. We uh, made sure to swing by the store and grab groceries, right? We could do all sorts of things that are technically not okay for children to do because no one else was doing it. And we like stepped up and we could be the oldest or not. It actually has nothing to do with where we are. A lot of times it's the oldest girl that does this, but boys can have this happen too. It's not it, it really just depends on the situation, okay? So that's what parentification is. Now, what's happening here is what I would call emotional incest. Now, I have a video about that. And emotional incest is essentially when a parent, and it does parent, you're not wrong calling it parentification, 
but it's almost like spousification, which somebody asked a question about this down below that I'll get into. But when you become the emotional support for your parent, that's emotional incest. And the reason that I call it this, and I know that term might be much more loaded for people, and we can be like, that's a heavy term, Katie. But it is completely inappropriate for a parent to talk to a child as if they are another adult or their spouse, like a friend or a spouse. That's not okay. Yes, parents should communicate clearly with their children, but their children are not, they're not their therapist, they're not their best friend, and they're definitely not their spouse. And so when we communicate with our children, healthy ways are to explain to them what's going on as clearly and concisely as possible and be open to them asking questions. That can mean that we can say, you know, mom is feeling kind of down. You know, sometimes I have these depressive episodes. It's not your fault and it's not up to you to make me feel better, but I wanted you to know that that's what's going on. That's healthy communication. We can tell a child we're having a hard time, but those two things I said about it not being their fault and it's not, you know, not up to them to fix it. That's where this becomes emotional incest because it sounds like you felt very responsible for her, that you had to take care of her and you had to alleviate her problems and you had to listen to stuff. As she told you about her childhood trauma, that is, that's traumatizing. It's actually abusive. And that's why I call it emotional incest because the emotional, the level of emotional sharing that your mother was doing with you was incestuous. It was inappropriate. It's abusive. It's unhealthy. And it leads us down a path where we are burnt out when we're a teen. We can struggle with regulating our own emotions. Um, we can find ourselves in other relationships moving forward where everybody's always asking of us and dumping on us. And we have no one to dump on or to talk to. Um, and so, of course, you felt really depressed. And of course, you're feeling completely burned out because that's unhealthy for you. And the fact that you're still living with your mother, as soon as you can get out, I encourage you to make a plan and get out, whether that's by going to school and you leave and you don't come back, or whether that's saving up, you know, getting a job and moving out that way. And I'm not saying you can't have a relationship with your mother. That's not for me to decide. That's for you to decide. But I do think we need some healthy boundaries, which are going to be difficult for you to place because you've never been able to, and they've never been respected. Like you said, you didn't want to know specifics about her trauma. She just walked right over that boundary. Um, we need you to get better at like leaving or not listening, walking away, saying, I told you, I don't want to hear about this. I'm going to go outside or I'm going to go do this or, you know, and we just leave. I got to go take a shower. Bye. We just remove ourselves from the conversation. But all of that's going to take extra support from a therapist and finding friends who aren't doing the same thing your mother does to you. Because you might see this pattern. It'd be completely normal. I would honestly expect it for you to see this show up in other relationships of yours. So I guess the question she said, can someone telling you too much do this? To yes, it 100% can. And is it bad to feel responsible? I don't like to term bad. It's unhealthy for you. And your mother has put you into a situation where she, it's like, that's the norm. And it's really up to her. She should be getting her own therapy. You are not her therapist. You're her child. And she should be protecting you and talking to you and helping you grow your own emotional intelligence. But unfortunately, she, I don't think, is capable. And so she's dumped on you your whole life. And so it is not healthy for you to, to feel responsible for your mom in that way. We can love and care for a parent and want what's best for them and feel like we should show up for them or, oh, I can help out with dinner. It helps mom if I do that. We can do those kinds of things. That's like family support. But this emotional 
incest that's happening, this trauma dumping, this uh, parentification, like you're like the spouse with your mom or the best friend or the therapist, that emotional level, that's not appropriate. And so you said, is it just normal to uh, normal care for your loved ones? No, this is not a normal level. And I wouldn't even call it care. I would say this is not a normal level of intimacy or sharing that should happen between a parent and a child. Now, the comments on these, one said, hi, Katie, as an add-on, could you talk about emotional parentification, please? As a child, I had to control my emotions and manage my mother's too, to avoid getting punished and rejected. I was the scapegoat child. I grew up not knowing what emotions are and being scared of them. I've become very good at reading the room and walking on eggshells, of course, because it behooved you to learn that so that you wouldn't end up in a worse situation. I became very independent. I really struggle to open up to my therapist. I believe I have to not say anything about my trauma in case it upsets her. I don't want to burden her or ruin her day. Please, please, please tell your therapist this is coming up for you. Again, I'm not surprised that it is because like I said before, these patterns will show up. And this concern that you're going to hurt your therapist or ruin her day, that's because you were you were brought up to think that you had to manage your mother's emotions, that you're responsible for hers too. Versus what's actually true is you can only be responsible for your own. We can't make anybody feel some kind of way. We can do things that are hurtful and people might react to that, but it's not up to us to make someone feel good or to ha- make someone feel a, a bad, good, uh, healthier focus. We can't m- control other people at all because someone can try to hurt my feelings and I can not let it affect me, right? So we really have zero control of other people. I'm not saying we should try to hurt other people, obviously, but I'm just saying um, that we don't have any control over other people's emotional responses to the world and to life. And so the fact that you had that growing up is why it's hard for you to talk about it in therapy. Let your therapist know this is happening. Tell it to her just like you told it to me. Sometimes talking around it, like I have trouble opening up because you know I think it's coming from here and I just don't want to ruin your day. And I worry, and I think it might come from my relationship with my mom you know, but I just don't want to burden you with all this. You can say it like that. That's totally reasonable. And that will give your therapist an idea of what's happening and maybe why we're kind of shutting down or struggling to speak up in, in our sessions. Um, and that will really, really help. And that's, again, the emotional parentification I'll call emotional incest. And then I have a video on YouTube about that. So you can just look up emotional incest, Katie Morton, it'll come up. It's, again, when a parent shares a level of emotional I guess it's emotional experience or they they share their own thoughts and feelings like you're their equal, like you're a friend, a therapist maybe, or a spouse, and it's inappropriate. Another person asks, says, in addition, parentification between parents and adult children, as well as parents with addiction. For example, a parent doesn't maintain healthy or health, daily mundane or important responsibilities, so the adult child steps in to help. This is classic uh, when it comes to addiction where a child will step up and be parentified. Even if we're an adult, the parent has never been able to be a parent. And so we've always filled that role and this doesn't change just because we got older and we're not a child anymore. Unfortunately, you know, if a parent has addiction, the best thing that you can do is get into Al-Anon, which is AA for the family. It also, I mean, it's not just for alcoholics. They have like you know, narcotics and any any kind of addiction that a family member had, Al-Anon can help support you in that. And it's free. There are groups online. They're in person. 
you don't have to share right away. Um, I used to just give a dollar when I would go. They pass around. But you don't have to donate if you can't afford it. It's a great support to understand the separation between you and a parent and where responsibility lies and where it's actually codependence. And the reason I have a video about codependence, if you want to learn more, but in short, when we have addiction in our family, we can feel like we don't have independence in a healthy way. We are codependent, meaning that we are, our job is to take care of this other person. And so we find fulfillment in our addiction as the person in this addictive relationship, our addiction is that other person and their addiction is the substance. And so this codependence on each other, this feeling that we both have, that's how we work together. um, It's essential. It's very unhealthy. And that's kind of what is happening here and feeling like your, your parent isn't maintaining these daily, you know, mundane or important responsibilities. And so you have to do it. And I'm here to tell you, you don't, I know it's hard, but if your parent is still an addict, I would encourage you to get them help is, is encourage them to get help and withdraw the support at least somewhat so that you aren't lighting yourself on fire to keep them warm, that you aren't engaging continually in this codependent relationship. Because that's the problem with addiction is we can feel like their emotions are our emotions. We can have some enmeshment going on. We feel overly responsible because they were never responsible. So one of us had to be the parent, right? Um, Again, boundaries are going to be key and working to kind of undo this programming that, that has made you believe that you're responsible and that you have to step in. I'm not saying that we should abandon people. I know some people get agitated. They're like, but you have to take care of them. And yes, but again, we cannot light ourselves on fire to keep someone else warm. So if in the caring of this parent who's an addict, we find ourselves engaging in unhealthy behaviors, feeling terrible, feeling burnt out, overwhelmed, walking on eggshells, reading rooms and like energy so intensely, that's not healthy for us. We have to put some boundaries in place. Maybe have them get them a care worker or tell them they need to go to the hospital. You know, if they're that if they're an an addict and cannot take care of the basic daily tasks, they need help, and we can't do that all for them. Okay. There's another add-on. It says, "Hey, Katie, could you talk specifically about spousification or emotional incest?" My therapist mentioned in one ses- session that he thinks I'm acting like a surrogate spouse to each of my parents. Probably, I couldn't find a lot of information about this topic online. Would you please talk about the impacts? and the treatments for spousification. Thank you so much. I feel like I've kind of touched on this, but that emotional incest, the oversharing, not only robs us of our childhood, I guess I haven't talked about this piece, the fact that when we are parentified or spousified or emotional incest is happening, we don't get a chance to be a kid and just be. We're we're already overly involved with our family and have to engage in conversations that essentially are way above our developmental level than what we should have to even consider. And not to mention the the trauma of that potentially, or even just the, because they're oversharing about things that we, sh- we shouldn't be a part of, we shouldn't know about, we don't have any control over. It can cause us a lot of anxiety because we, we can worry and we don't fully understand things because developmentally we shouldn't even be engaging in these conversations, um, but it can leave no room for us to be us. We don't get to be ourselves. We don't get to develop at our own pace. We're kind of fast-tracked and forced into these adult conversations when we're a child and hence robbing us of our childhood. Um, I feel like I talked a lot about the emotional incest. Again, I have a video about that if you want more, but there are a ton of impacts. Everything from attachment issues will usually be like anxious attachment, either avoidant 
or anxious um, because letting people in or even making room for ourselves doesn't feel very safe. Um, we can also find ourselves in other relationships with people who need, who we need, we like feel needed. They need us. And that is a very unhealthy way to engage in a relationship, but it's all that we know. We can think that we have to hustle for our worth. We have to earn love through action, through being of service. Uh, we probably find ourselves in positions work, like being a nurse, a therapist, teacher, uh, any kind of caregiving role. We can find ourselves in that. Um, yeah, it can also lead us, to, like I said, in other relationships that are very similar. And I'm happy to keep talking about this in other videos. If you guys want, let me know. Now, there's another add-on. I think this is our final add-on. It says, Katie, is it common for parentification to be associated with different types of abuse? For example, parentification and childhood sexual abuse. And can parentification make it harder to allow oneself to realize what happened and that one's boundaries were crossed? I have disturbing flashbacks or memories and nightmares of childhood sexual abuse, but I find it incredibly hard to accept. Is it something that truly happened as opposed to something in a messed up fantasy? I also struggle with the idea that I am hurt and need to look after myself instead of trying to please and care for family members. Okay, so of course we struggle with the idea that we need to care for ourselves um, over family because that was not how we were taught. It's essentially like the family dance that we did was us caring for them and we never cared for ourselves. And so to have a therapist or to have anybody tell you that you should put yourself first, it feels, it can feel very uncomfortable. And I've even seen people online when I mention things like this, get angry at me for even having the gall to say that. How dare you put yourself first? And that's sad because that means that that's the belief that we have, that that it's that it's wrong to take care of ourselves. I don't, I don't understand that belief system. And so if you find anger coming up as I even talk about this, dig into that. Anger is a really helpful emotion. It tells us where there's something else underlying. And I would argue that if we're feeling really angry when someone tells us, hey, you should probably put yourself first, or you should take care of yourself first, it probably comes from a place because we growing up, our blueprint for how relationships should go were those that told us that we were always secondary and that we could never put other people first, that it's not appropriate. We might've been shamed, blamed, or abused for doing it. And so the the family dance or the dynamic in our family is that other people come first. And I'm not saying that we can't put other people up there on our list, but if we don't care for ourselves first, we cannot care for other people. Then we're lighting ourselves on fire to keep someone else warm. Now, there were other questions in this that said, um, is it common for for parentification to be associated with different types of abuse? Yes. The most common, I would say, is emotional neglect because we have to rise the occasion and support the parent and the parent's not doing that for us. So we're missing out on something. So neglect, I would argue, is probably the most common. But if you feel like it's different, I please share. I'd be happy to hear you out. Um, and parentification and childhood sexual abuse as well because if we think of the incest, that emotional incest, that can mean that it can lead to incestual acts, sexual acts on a child. Um, if if they're treating us like they were spouses, partners in life, then that can unfortunately lead to an intimate connection that should not be happening with a child. That's not appropriate at all for many reasons. The emotional component, the physical component, none of it. All very, very abusive. Um, and yes, parentification can make it harder for you to realize that what, what happened was in fact, abuse and was in fact unhealthy and terrible because it's the only way that we know how to live and that feels normal, right? And that's kind of the 
it's it's so annoying and something as a therapist I we battle with all the time is fighting back against the fact that our norm, what we grew up with, what felt okay, what we thought was what everybody experienced, it's hard to break out of that and see another way. And we can that's why we end up dating people who are like our parents because that's norm. That's what we're used to. That's the baseline. That's what we were told. This blueprint that we have, we go out into the world and we're looking for somebody who has the same blueprint. And we're like, oh, you're like emotionally unavailable. I was emotionally neglected. This feels comfortable, even though it's incredibly unhealthy. And that's why, you know, we have to challenge it. We have to lean into the discomfort of a new way of thinking, of a different dynamic in a relationship. And that's where a therapist can really help us because it's going to feel weird. We're going to think, oh, this is a bad sign. I shouldn't be with this person. I shouldn't try to date this person. This friend is not really showing up for me in the way that I'm used to. And we need a therapist to kind of bounce that off of where they're like, no, she's actually just emotionally supporting you. It's uncomfortable, but I encourage you to lean into it because if we're not uncomfortable, we're not changing. And I don't mean that we should be pushing into the discomfort of like, I think this is abusive. No, 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 no. But things that don't quite feel right, if we're coming in with an unhealthy blueprint from a neglectful or abusive household, we actually want things to be uncomfortable. I know that's the shittiest thing I could ever tell anybody, but it's the truth. And the sooner we kind of realize that and lean into the discomfort, the sooner we'll feel better and the less likely we will be to like repeat these cycles, repeat these patterns in our own family and in our own life. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's move on to question number three. This question says, hey, Katie, my question is, is it normal that I constantly crave attention from some people, like my favorite friend, my therapist, doctors, and that I wish they could see how badly I am doing? I have an eating disorder. I wished I could tell them, but I can't. And I hope that my body alone could do the talking that they would worry when they see me or when they see that I lost weight, et cetera. But on the other hand, I do everything so nobody sees how worse I'm getting. I just feel so alone and lost. I'm so sorry you're going through this, but if it's any you know, consolation, it's very, very common. And the reason is when we have an eating disorder, I've always called it like silent screaming. Self-injury is kind of similar. It's a coping skill, right? We're using our eating disorder to cope with something bigger. And we often hope that people see it, not because we crave attention, but remember attention is a normal human need. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's not that we do it for attention. We do it because we need care and support. And we don't know how to communicate that because we've never been shown or told either in our, our upbringing, like in our family, nobody communicated or the way they communicated was really passive aggressive, or maybe it was abusive. And so we go out into the world and we're like, if I express an upset or say I need something, I used to get beaten at home or shamed. So when I have a need or I have an upset, I don't know how to tell people about it. So I stuff it down deep. I feel worse. And I use my eating disorder to cope with it or my self-injury or my shopping addiction or drugs or alcohol. I use that to numb out because I don't know what to do with those emotions. And so then when we find people who are in a caretaking role, therapists, doctors, uh, teachers, uh, best friends, we deeply, deeply wish that we could tell them how we're feeling. And the only way we know how to communicate is through our eating disorder. And it's like, that's our way of communication. Because again, we were never taught how to use words and phrases and how to say what's going on. So we try to show it. And so you're not alone. That's very normal. And then we also don't want people to know how bad we're getting because we don't want them to try to take it from us. 
And we don't really want pity. We want support. And so it's very complicating. I feel really uncomfortable. Give yourself time. I encourage you to let your therapist know if you can, maybe just read them this question. Be like, I asked this weird therapist on the internet about this and she said it's really normal. So I'm just going to read you what I've told her, okay? You know, or maybe text it or email it if she allows that. Be like, I just got to get this out there. I really struggle with this because that's why your eating disorder is there. It's your way of coping. And we, until we learn how to communicate, it's going to hang around. But it's going to be really uncomfortable to kind of let this guard down and talk about it. So be, you know, go slow and take your time and be patient with yourself. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. This question says, Hey, Katie, would love to hear your take on mental health care workers who also struggle with their mental health. I volunteer for a suicide hotline and I work as a mental health professional and I struggle with my own mental health. We all do. For example, PTSD and depression. It seems that a lot of mental health professionals have struggled or struggle with their mental health. But when people are open to their colleagues, et cetera, it seems like they can't, they are, uh, they are being taken less seriously. Have you experienced it? Why does this happen? What can we do about it? Lots to talk about here. Um, first of all, a lot of mental health professionals do struggle with their own mental health. And that's what pulled us into this field in the first place. I truly believe that everybody, if they're being honest, has gone through, and this I'll use a term that people are more comfortable with, a rough patch. That could mean an anxiety rough patch where we had panic attacks. That could mean a depression uh, you know, rough patch where we felt really hopeless and helpless. That could mean we struggled with food and eating in our bodies through our teens and early 20s. That could mean we self-injured when we were younger or now. It's very, very common. And that's often what drew us into the mental health field because for me, at least, I'll speak up and say, you know, when I was younger, I definitely had a bout of depression, probably when I was like 15 through 16. I don't I don't really know what triggered it. There's a couple events like I got broken up with, a, but I dated the guy for like a week or two and dated is a strong word. I'm like 15, right? Um, that was definitely one of the like triggering events, but I truly believe it was more hormonal and that me not having proper communication strategies and, and um, kind of being in between friend groups at the time, feeling kind of isolated. All of that to say that I went through this depressive period and my therapist was such a huge help to me that I wanted to be able to do that for somebody else. Okay. Now, other professionals will sometimes get into therapy to fix themselves. That's wrong. You get into your own therapy for that, but you don't get into being a therapist for that. Just going to put that out there. Okay. We don't use our time as a professional to help other people or to help ourselves. I mean, we use it to help other people. So if you find yourself wanting to utilize the time in other sessions with your clients to talk about your own ish, that means that we need to be more responsible about our own treatment and we need to get into therapy maybe more intensely. Like I went twice a week for a while when my dad died because I was just very overwhelmed. So I encourage you to just consider that, okay? But to your question, because I know that's a little off topic, for your question about experiencing this, luckily I have not. The eating disorder treatment centers that I worked at and the hospitals, people talked about things openly. Even one of my uh, great bosses, she had a son who had bipolar disorder and it really affected her. And she talked a lot about it, like her own depression and then getting him proper treatment. And we just all supported each other. But I have heard from other people that their places of work are not as supportive. And even when I share things online as someone who's put themselves out there, I can get shit from people. Like, I can't believe, like I got a comment recently on Instagram from somebody that I blocked <laughs> because this I don't need this kind of shit in my life. Um, getting mad that I had shared. They're like, I can't believe you'd cry publicly. You should be embarrassed. You're a mental health professional and you clearly can't even take care of yourself. It was so 
spicy, right? Um, and I find it really unfortunate that people believe that in order to help someone else, we can't have any problems ourselves. I truly am a firm believer in the fact that as long as I am taking care of myself, which I'm in therapy every week, you guys know I do a lot of personal work, but that doesn't mean I'm perfect. I don't want you to ever think that it's wrong to experience strong emotions and to express them and to show those to other people. That's how we heal and grow. That's how we create community. That's how we support each other. I don't want you to think I'm perfect. No one wants to look up to somebody perfect. That only makes us feel worse about our own experience. And so I truly believe that having our own mental health struggles makes us better at our jobs with the huge caveat that we have to take care of our own shit first. We cannot utilize our time with our patients to do that. That's inappropriate. That's the ethical quagmire. And so I think, unfortunately, a lot of people in the mental health profession have these chips on their shoulders where they think that they have it all together and they know all the answers and they're perfect. And that's what they have to put together and promote to their patients in order to do their jobs. I don't know where this comes from. I think some people it's ego driven. Like they want to say they have all the answers and they know how to do everything perfectly. For others, I think it might come out of just feeling like that's what's expected, like letting other expectations apply to their life. I think other therapists, especially ones who are very rigid with boundaries, which I also am, I think it's a little inappropriate. They don't want their patients to know anything about them at all. It could be their style of therapy. There's a lot of reasons. And so if, if they feel like, oh, you don't have it together, then you can't help it. It's our own stigma. I, the stigma is deep. It's not just out in the world. It also affects the mental health care community as a whole, like our healthcare system. Um, I think it happens just out of honestly, ego and ignorance. And it's up to people like you and I to talk about it. And other people on the internet, Dr. J is a great example too. He shares a lot of his own struggles. And as a man, I think it's also important for other men to see a guy sharing too. It can't just be, you know, people like me. I want people to look, see different people out in the world in a mental health care position and also sharing that they can have struggles so that, you know, it can resonate with everybody. Um, but unfortunately it happens because of our society. And it, it is unfortunate. It makes me very uh, disappointed. Um, but all we can do is keep sharing, keep talking about it, and keep working together. Because I think if, if as long as you're taking care of yourself, it makes you better at your job. Okay? Let's move on to question five. It says, Dear Katie, I hope you're doing well. I am um, feeling better this week. So, yeah. It says, My parents are nice to me. However, I never feel comfortable telling my parents anything. I become a very private person. I crave affection, but for some reason, I don't feel comfortable receiving it from my parents. Interesting. I also always feel distanced from them. And for some reason, I never let them see me upset or support me. I keep pushing them away, even though I think they might be trying to help. Am I a terrible daughter for doing this? I feel horrible and I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't want my parents to come to my games, support me at school. I always imagine getting hugs, but from other people in my mind. Can you please tell me why I do this? Thank you, Katie. Okay. I have a lot to... To, I have a lot of questions, follow-up questions. Now, the way that you describe, you said your parents are nice to you. And there's a piece here that I really want to dive into because we don't talk about it enough. I mean, I talk about it, but not from this perspective. The fact that our parents can be kind, yet not the emotional connection that we crave and need for growth. Parents can be nice but they can only meet us as deep as they've met themselves. And so we can often find ourselves trying to communicate with our parents in a level that they aren't comfortable with. Or parents, unfortunately, for any parent out there, 
because we don't want to see our child suffering, when they come to us with a problem, instead of just listening or even asking, hey, do you want me to help you fix this or do you just want me to listen? That's a great check-in because parents want to fix. And so because we don't want them to feel any pain, we can say things like, no, 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 don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. Or like, you know what you could do? You should just reach out and speak up to that person. You should stop reading those comments on your Facebook page or your Snapchat or whatever it is. You know, we can tell them that. You shouldn't look at those TikTok things anymore. We try to fix this upset. We tell them, oh, don't talk to that girl if she's so rude to you. Or if you don't think they like you, let's find you a new friend. All of that fixing can leave us, unfortunately, as children or as teenagers even, feeling unheard, unsupported. And like we're kind of making something into a bigger deal than maybe it should be. We can feel like we're like we're minimized and invalidated. And so if, I wonder if that's what happened with your parents. We essentially could have been emotionally neglected, meaning they even though they're nice to you, they never they never held you. They never, you know, rubbed your back when you cried or maybe played with your hair and asked about your day or did anything physical cuz you said you crave affection. So maybe they aren't very affectionate physically or verbally and we really needed that so even though they're not bad overtly abusive terrible parents they neglected you and because of that we don't know how to talk to them we don't know how to open up to them or maybe we've tried recently and again we were kind of like poo-pooed and so that is why we crave it because we all need it it's a very natural normal human need but we've the people that we should have gotten it from didn't give it to us. And so we look for other people. That's why you don't see yourself, like imagine yourself hugging them because you're like, they never really did that for me. I need it from someone who feels more emotionally there with me. And so I don't know if any of that resonates with you, but you're not a terrible daughter for doing this. But I would encourage you if you feel, I mean, therapy is going to be really beneficial, but there's a piece of peace in here because if your parents really are good parents. Only you know this, be honest with yourself. And you feel like they could maybe attempt to meet you where you're at. We could have conversations with them where we ask them for what we need. And it might feel uncomfortable. We're not used to getting stuff like that from them. But if we want to repair the relationship and maybe move it in a direction that's healthier, we're going to have to ask for what we need. And if they offer it, try to accept it. And it will take some time for us to allow that but over time it can heal and we can be able to finally receive from them. But it's going to take all of us participating. They have to offer it consistently over time. We have to be able to at least, even if it's uncomfortable, work to accept it and let it happen and slowly process through it and figure out maybe what's coming up for us and and we'll get there. Um, but that those are kind of my hypotheses about where this is coming from. And it's incredibly common. Um, it also could come, and I just want to, as a little caveat, sometimes when we're in our teen years, we need, we want a lot of like independence from our parents, even though we still very much need them. And we can feel this kind of push-pull, like we want them to know, but we don't want to tell them because they won't agree or we want to do this thing. So that discomfort is very normal. This is different. This is a step further where it's like, I don't really want them hugging me. I don't really, I don't feel like I can open up to them. It, it's more than that. It's more than that, what I would call like teen push and like kind of being a dick. We all kind of go into that phase for a bit in teen years. Now there was a comment on this that this one breaks my heart. I feel like my own youngest child feels this way towards me. Katie, if you pick this question, could you also give ways that a parent could reach a child that is pushing them away? I love 
I love my kids so much and I do anything, uh, anything possible for them. I want more for them than myself. Talk to them, ask them. If you think it's a teen thing, because teens kind of like want to be away for a bit, we can give it time, but continue to check in. We don't want to push and push because in the pushing to get closer, we can push them away, but check in with them. And you, you could even say like, I feel like you're pulling away. Is there something I've done or not done? Are you needing support in a different way? And listening to learn, just letting them vent, not listening to fix. So think of those things. Um, and I believe that that could improve the relationship if they're willing to talk to you. Again, we have we can just keep checking and we can't force it. And hopefully they'll come back around and then they'll, you know, share with you some of the things that they want or need and they didn't that they didn't get. This doesn't mean you're a bad parent. Often we just do the best that we can with what we knew or what we know about ourselves. And we might not have been able to meet them there, right? Um, but we can try. We can all grow and change, right? I make a whole living believing we can grow and change. So hopefully those are some tips to get you started. There was another comment that also related to this as a parent. How do you create that comfortable place for your kids? When I was growing up, my parents overshared all the time. Again, that emotional incest. Every time I came to them for support, their answer was to share something even worse that had happened to them growing up. So I had nothing to complain about compared to them. As a result, it's really hard for me to share details of my childhood with my own kids. What does healthy sharing look like? And how is a parent supposed to do this without invalidating our children's experiences? Great question. Um, first part of the question, the how do you create a comfortable place for your kids? You're just there. I know people often think, oh, you got to buy a lot of things for your kids and you take them on these trips and do these things. And trips could be good if we can afford them because they're shared experiences, but kids just want time with us. Their whole lives, that's all they want is time with us. They want us to watch them do this funny dance. They want us to teach them how to build something or how to throw that baseball or football. They want us to allow them to help us cook in the kitchen. They want to learn. They want to be with us. They want to share in experience. And so that's really what it's all about. And that's how we create that comfortable space is through doing things with them. And if they're older, we just check in. I think part of it is, is continually and consistently checking in and really wanting to know, hey, how are you? And leaving space. Let them talk. Listen. You're the parent and they're the child. So if we need to share our own stuff, we can do that with our own friends. If they ask how we are and they're an older child, we can tell them some stuff. We don't dump everything. We tell them a little bit about what we're going through and we, we continue asking them and we just, we check in regularly. Maybe that's once a week. Maybe that's every day. Depends on the dynamic of your relationship, but I would encourage you to start doing that more. And then the fact that your parents overshared all the time, you have, you've swung like we all do from what we experienced to the other extreme, almost feeling like you can't share anything. And I think when children are sharing something that resonates with you, I would I would encourage you to use what I'll call the therapeutic approach where let's say a patient is sharing about losing their father. Now I've lost my father, right? And I'd let them share and I'd say, you know, that's incredibly difficult and I can't imagine what you're going through. I lost my own father when I was this age. So I at least have my own experience of this and I know how hard that can be. So I'm not um, saying mine was worse. I'm not sharing a bunch of details. I'm sharing the big piece in the hopes that they know that means I at least can understand a little bit. So if your child shares something like, let's say they're getting bullied at school and they didn't tell you before, they're telling you after the fact. So there's nothing you can actively do about it. You can say to them, I am so sorry, that is so uncomfortable. I got bullied in school. 
when I was about your age too. And I know how terrible it is. How can I help you with that? So we we don't make it about ourselves. We share briefly and we then we reach back to them to let them continue to share. And it's kind of in that that brief sharing that they hopefully acknowledge or recognize, oh, they do kind of get it a little bit, but we're not putting any more context. We're not trying to say their experience is our experience. Then we're kind of moving into how we can help them and back to your story. But I just want you to know, I I at least know a little bit. And I just really encourage people to not pretend your experience is their experience. That's something we can fall into too easily. It's better to just say, I know, you know, it's been forever. My life is different. I experienced something like this when I was your age. I know somewhat of what you're going through, but tell me more. I think the best questions we can ask are these open-ended ones with children where we say, tell me more about that. Let them tell you. It was a hard day. Tell me about it. What happened? Let them talk. And that's that's a safe space. And we don't talk to fix. We don't share with other people what they shared with us unless they say it's okay, right? We build that confidence. We build that relationship. And that will help our children grow closer to us in more, you know, as they get older. Okay? Final question, question number six says, Hi, Katie. How can I feel excited and hopeful about my future? As someone who lives and looks into the past a lot, a friend suggested that it could be that way because some somewhere I don't feel excited about my future, which is why I feel maybe all the excitement was in the past. To be honest, he was absolutely right. I haven't felt both hopeful and excited in a long time. My deep negative thinking and cognitive thinking errors could be a contributor, hence the question above. Yes, yes, yes. Looking in the past is never helpful unless we're using it to learn. And this is going to sound crazy and probably like way too simple of an answer for a very complex question, but just hang with me. If we struggle to feel excited or hopeful, I have like two main tips. And the first, and the one that you're going to be like, this is too easy of a question. We have to look for things to be excited about. Like I'm going to give you some really wild examples all across the board. Okay. We love colder weather and snow. So we're super stoked that winter's coming. We um, have a vacation coming because the holidays, super stoked to not be working. I can get excited about that. I can be hopeful for that. Um, The McRib is coming back (laughs) to McDonald's. People get super stoked about that. Pumpkin spice was out, right? Um, They're coming new with a peppermint latte. Um, I was at the store and they had my favorite kind of drink and they're usually out of that energy drink or that flavor of creamer or that sausage I like for breakfast. I don't even care what it is. There are simple ways for us to get excited. Like, uh, for instance, the other day, my favorite perfume was uh, 30% off on sale and I was just running out of it. <gasps> so excited. That that sounds silly, but we're at whatever you look for, you will find. And so I want you to be a detective for excitement. I want you to be like a, a excitement-seeking missile and you're at looking into the world for reasons to get real stoked. And then even in, if you want to put in the comments, tell me all the everybody tell me all the wild things you got excited about this week like i get excited about um getting new pens and new clean paper starting a new to-do list ooh 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 so exciting that first drink of coffee in the morning i know these are silly i know it sounds too simple but trust me when i tell you it can change your life okay so that's the real answer and that's the one that you probably are like that's a little too simple but i'm just telling you it could change your life. And the second piece is that when we struggle to look into the future and be hopeful, 
we have to figure out some things that we're looking forward to. Remember how I used to say, if you don't want to journal, you can write down two things that you're working on, two things um, that you're grateful for, and two things that you're um, looking forward to. Those are some ways that we should always be looking forward to something. Again, are you excited that it's winter and the snow is falling? Are you excited that you don't have to work a couple days this weekend? Let's look forward for things that we we're, we want to happen. I'm looking forward to that. As silly or trivial as it may feel at the time, it can completely change your view on the world because the one thing that I will tell you that I know without a doubt is that whatever we look for, we will find. So instead of looking in the past and looking for reasons your present and future are shitty, we have to look for the things that are going well, the things we're looking forward to, life's little joys, because they're there, we're just ignoring them. Okay, so let's be a heat-seeking missile for excitement and positivity. And I'm telling you, change your life. Okay? Thank you all so much for listening and watching. Thank you for sharing this podcast. Thank you for sending in your questions. I love you all so much. Have a wonderful, wonderful new year and wonderful week. Do your homework and I'll see you next time. Bye.